0: Thank you for joining me. Today we're going to be talking about how to identify the roles of codependency and how to heal them in your own life. I would encourage you, if you have not already, listened to the podcast from last week. It's going to be important to understand some of the things we're going to be talking about today. I will give a brief overview for those that did listen in last week so that you'll be refreshed and you understand some of the concepts that I'll be diving deeper in today. The one basic thing that you will have to take away from last week is what triangulation is and how it exists. Last week, I talked about a bicycle and how it was important to understand relationships through how we ride a bicycle itself. As long as the bicycle is moving, it stays upright. Two people exist on both ends of this bicycle, and as long as they are moving forward in a healthy way, the relationship is stable. When one or both of those wheels is unable or unwilling to develop and grow, the bicycle comes to a halt. And if those two people, those two wheels of the bicycle, would like for the relationship to stay steady and remain upright, then they will have to enable the use of a kickstand. That kickstand, the third party in a relationship, is what keeps people together when they are unable to work on their stuff. When two people can't handle what's going on between them, whether it's because of one person or another or some outside force, they can defer to someone or something else and talk about that instead. I use some examples of some of my favorite triangulations to talk about in therapy through child pageantry and travel baseball. And again, if you're unsure how those things link, I would encourage you to go back last week. However, this third-party dynamic is something we're going to be diving into a little more deeply so that we can understand codependency in itself. You'll find deeper information on all of this as well as more flushed-out ideas in my book To Those Left Behind. The chapter is called X&Y Track 4. So let's go deeper into what this third party is. We understand how one person interacts with another, how they maintain a relationship through openness and vulnerability. What happens when that goes wrong? How would we know if someone is codependent? Let me dispel a few myths first. Codependency is one of my most hated words to hear in therapy and in public because it is so incredibly overused. Some people say, oh my goodness, my partner is so codependent, or my friend or my family member is so codependent. One, codependency is not a weapon to hit someone with. Two, if any of you listening have an understanding of vocabulary, the first two letters of codependency, C-O, co, means two. If someone says that their partner is codependent, then by definition, they are codependent as well. So anytime I have someone come into my office and say, my partner, my husband, my wife, whatever it is, is so codependent, my follow-up is, well, you must be too because you're with them. Now, this is where that bludgeon becomes not so tempting anymore. However, this distinction is incredibly important. The other reason that I highlight that co means, too, is that codependency exists between two people. No one's codependent on their own. They're just isolated and lonely. It's how they interact with other people that brings up codependency and can label someone codependent. So the way that we can define this and we can start to see it play out in a pattern is by correctly identifying what that third party is. Now, it can be represented in many different ways through kids, through people, through activities, through trauma. However, in codependency, that third party always, always, always has one thing. Intensity. Now, let me explain what I mean by intensity. Intensity isn't always yelling. It isn't always a screaming match or some kind of physical altercation. It isn't even what we see nowadays with these grand gestures that are being made. Sure, those things are very intense, but those aren't the only intense things that can happen in a relationship. Another way that you can find intensity, even in something rather quiet, is when something is unspoken, but highly effective. So let's say that between a couple, there's an issue with drinking. And let's say a partner comes home, drunk, says nothing, and walks to bed. I would argue that is a highly intense situation. Not because anyone yelled and screamed, but because there was an issue, a problem, a relationship break that was unresolved. So, intensity can be buying someone six dozen flowers one morning because you feel guilty. It can also be insulting someone with no resolution and walking away, or spending all of the savings and making no remark. Intensity is defined by those unresolved feelings other than just what adrenaline provides. So how do we see this intensity played out in a rather obvious manner? My favorite example of codependency and intense behavior that doesn't include a child is from my public high school experience. Now, if you didn't go to public high school, you can probably relate to this to some degree, although public high school is notorious for this sort of thing. I remember some time ago, you would walk down the hallway and find a rather affectionate couple. I say rather affectionate because I'm not entirely sure who's listening to this podcast yet. We're still early on here, Um, but you get the idea. And when they would stand up and walk to class. One of the things that you would always see them say is, and I'll try to give some emphasis here because you're not seeing me in person, but I'll see you next period. No, I'll see you next period. It's this very dramatic encounter where the two people cannot have a sense of silence or distance between one another. It has to be some dramatic ordeal. In a less comical and more common way, you see this from people who are in a relationship that have to text constantly, or always see or hear from someone at a certain time of day or during school. In high school, you can see this intensity and codependency loud and clear, but it absolutely carries on into adulthood. The biggest way that you can see this intensity play out is when one partner doesn't know what to do or who they are without the other person present and positive. It can also be negative too, but most of the time it's the positive feelings of engagement that someone feels. That level of intensity can translate into many things and in many different factors, but no matter the dynamic, you can define codependency first by intensity mitigating responses, and without it, if all things were to be calm and everything out in the open, the couple might not feel the same sense of affection toward one another. They might find themselves rather distant or boring. So they mistake intensity for intimacy, And they start to assume that high levels of emotion and grand gestures mean love, when in reality, they just mean a surge of adrenaline. Intimacy is something we experience in the calm, in openness, in vulnerability, in holding someone in your arms, not in some grand gesture declaring your love in front of L.A. Dodger Stadium. So those are some things that you might have heard before, that Codependent couples are rather dramatic or intense. They tend to either fight or fight in secret. Let me give you some of the things that I have seen in my own therapy work, as well as in some theoretical ideas that I've spoken about with other practitioners. You can see an in-depth explanation of this next part on my YouTube channel. I'll link that video in the description as well so that you can go back and reference that if needed in the future. When I talk about codependency with individuals or with couples, I start to define each person within a category of either a giver or a taker. Now, neither one of those is better than the other. On the surface, it can seem as if well, one person is giving and the other person's just taking away. It's very obvious who the bad guy is or bad girl is. However, this description is more about the function of the relationship, not whether someone is nice or not. Let me define what givers and takers are and how they function. And then we'll see who's the good one, who's the bad one, or Maybe we can figure out that they share some of the blame. Start with givers. Givers are marked by their sense of hope, support, and sacrifice. These types of people are the ones who feel as if they have to help and serve and support someone else in order to feel fulfillment in themselves. They are often masked behind a sense of faith or spirituality, where they lose a sense of identity if they're not doing something for other people. Again, this sounds incredibly virtuous on its face, but it comes with a huge problem. Actually, it actually comes with a few problems. The first one is that without a continual sense of service, not just once a month, but a lot of times every day, they will feel as if they've lost themselves. They don't know what to do or how to slow down. In a slightly more cynical sense, you can have givers who give to everyone around them for the thanks, for the cards, for the admiration. Givers start to take a bit of a darker turn when you start to realize that their giving isn't just about some sort of charitable donation. It's how they define themselves. And without it, they don't feel much of anything. Of course, this is the most severe route of givers, but it's something I think a lot of givers could relate to. Now, givers start to go really wrong when they find a respective taker, someone to pour into this doubles dynamic. One thing I forgot to mention about givers is that their part of the codependent dynamic is about resolving something. Takers also need to resolve something, but givers resolve something that is often hidden in couples therapy. It's hidden in treatment centers. It's hidden among friends and family. But givers will go on this grand crusade to help someone else in order to resolve something inside of themselves. Whether it's a pain from the past or a hope from the future, they have to give in order to make things right. Or give themselves a sense of value, and without it, they will be forever shamed or forever lost. Takers, on the other hand, are people that seem to be the bad guys or girls in couples therapy. Haven't found it either category is strictly gendered, but takers are the ones that usually get all the fingers pointed at them. Now, takers are defined by their ideas that they have. It's their dreams that they hope to achieve. It's how they will utilize everything around them if they're simply given the chance. In a slightly more common saying, something that is not nearly as therapeutic as this podcast (laughs) might uh, present itself, takers are the ones that say, I want someone ride or die, no matter what happens. I want them by my side. Sounds really romantic. It also lacks boundaries. Takers struggle without someone or something supporting them. They're like a gas tank always running on empty. Without having someone to emotionally pour in and sacrifice for them, they're unable to do much of anything, or they're unable to maintain any kind of relationship. Takers, again, can seem like the bad guys, but they're the ones that have the big dreams for the future. They're the ones that want to do great things for the couple or great things for the family or for the community. But without someone who overgives to them, they don't achieve much. Their downfall starts to show up when their giver doesn't give in the way that the taker would like. Now, That might seem like a personal preference, but in reality, givers and takers both lack boundaries, and the taker depends on the giver having little to no boundaries emotionally. They cannot survive on a healthy dynamic where one person has a limit. They have their own reasons and expectations for things, and so they will start to make accusations of feeling unsupported or shut down. When in reality, sometimes a giver gets better and they realize that they cannot give everything of themselves. Takers are typically the ones that get referred to me in therapy, especially by a spouse or a loved one. They're also the ones that are very likely to be in treatment centers. Now, this codependent dynamic is one of the most difficult things that I have ever worked with in any kind of facility. Because you have someone come to treatment for inpatient or outpatient, short-term or long-term, and it starts to become apparent that this patient, this client, isn't doing all of this on their own. Someone is feeding them the energy to do it. And so one of the greatest barriers to success for takers is their respective giver not having healthy boundaries. When one partner plays their role to a great degree, it encourages the other one to do the same. And so you can have someone who continually relapses or struggles or whatever have you because the taker hasn't been able to create boundaries for themselves and the giver refuses to do anything but give. This is where you see this dynamic start to balance out. A lot of times I get couples in therapy and it becomes very easy to define givers and takers. Now, it is never as straightforward as I'm talking about here on the podcast. There are obviously categories of someone's life where those roles shift, particularly around things like sex. Maybe someone is a giver for the rest of the relationship, but around sex, They're a taker. Again, not one is better than the other, but they do have reasons for why they do what they do. I get really interested when people swap roles, either within a relationship or between relationships. What was it that motivated someone to give? What is it they're trying to reconcile or solve? Are they trying to make right a wrong of the past when they didn't help the taker? and they feel guilty and have to support it? Is the taker in front of them just a representation of something they've experienced in the past? On the other end, the takers, do they see givers as someone they wish they had or the unconditional love and support that they feel like they always need? This dynamic only lasts for so long unless two things can happen. The first is that They up the ante. If you're not a fan of poker, you don't really know what that means. I'll give you a short explanation. That volume gets turned up. The intensity has to increase. If you go back and think about the triangles, I talked about how that third party keeps people together. And I define today that intensity is always present. Intensity doesn't always mean loud. It just means those unresolved feelings. Well, When givers and takers seem to run out of energy, the volume gets turned up. The wife with a mental health disorder that is largely untreated or not treated very effectively, when she sees that her husband is waning, has greater symptoms. She probably doesn't do that intentionally. But because of the dynamic that has been created between her and her husband, When he starts leaning out, she has to lean in and increase the volume. The other way that you see givers and takers try to resolve things is they'll come to some grand resolution to make change. I talked in an earlier episode about ultimatums and boundaries. Here I'm talking about ultimatums. This grand idea that something will change. When the dynamic is no longer working out, the giver can't give anymore and the taker doesn't feel like they're receiving support, that they just fizzle until someone makes a threat credible enough to keep going. Now, in my practice, again, this is just from my own perspective, I tend to see codependent relationships fall apart when givers run out of energy. That's not to say that givers are the healthier between the two. There have been many occasions where when I worked with a couple, the alcoholic or the sick or the manipulative one starts to get much, much better. The taker starts to heavily improve and find a middle ground, only to realize that the giver was supporting it so they wouldn't have to look at their own stuff. No one's going to worry about the Xanax and Chardonnay wife when she's got the bourbon and beer husband getting DUIs. It can actually be functional for her to support someone who is a taker because then no one looks at what she's doing. It sounds really harsh, but over the years I've started to realize that that's incredibly true, and I've seen it so many times that I'm talking about it here. Going back to the giver usually ending things, I told you that the taker runs on an almost empty tank. Eventually, the giver runs out of energy because they're giving more than they really should, and that always tires people out and they begin to waste away. So either through some sort of self-resolution and hope for the future, or they just don't have it in them anymore, I see more often than not givers being the ones that step out of a relationship. The takers ultimately fizzle if they don't resolve things in themselves, but that's when I start to get worried in couples therapy. Now, I certainly don't want a giver to be an unhealthy giver. However, if they were the only one providing energy to this relationship, when they're gone, if the taker does not step in, there's nothing left. So they're going to separate or they're just going to come to some resolution that nothing's ever going to change and they should just live with it and emotionally separate even if they physically don't. So I may have sufficiently ruined a lot of relationships for you, and I hope I've ruined a ton of Nicholas Sparks movies. I hate those things so much my wife won't let me watch them with her anymore, and I honestly don't blame her. But how do we find the middle ground here? How do we find healing The first thing that I would ask you to do is to find out which role you tend to be. It might have shifted over the years. Let's say you were a child who was a giver because of a narcissistic or unhealthy parent. You may continue that role as a giver into romantic relationships – Or you might leave the home and come to some inner resolution that no one is ever going to take from you again, so you have to take from other people. That's an important thing to know in therapy and something that I mark as incredibly important in the process. Once you have found out which one you are, are you the giver who hopes and supports and sacrifices for other people to the detriment of yourself? Or are you the taker who dreams and works towards achievement and utilize everything around you just on the razor's edge of failure? You can start to find out how the other role could be useful, where you could meet in the middle. So let's talk about what you can do specifically. If you've identified yourself as a giver, You need to learn to create boundaries and understand that you cannot resolve yourself or your pain through someone else. It has never worked, and it will never work. You have to identify the reason that you're giving so much. You have to come to a recognition that it doesn't help anyone for you to give out of guilt, out of shame. No taker is healed by being given enough energy. They just continue being takers. Find healing for yourself, not in a selfish way, but in a way that is reasonable and healthy. Givers are the ones that usually do really well in therapy because they find someone else can give to them and they feel rather shocked and surprised. So if you find yourself a giver, create boundaries for yourself. What is reasonable? How much is it that you can handle? Have you lost yourself along the way? Your partner or your family was no longer present and it was just you alone in the room, do you have a sense of value or do you lose it without someone else to support? If you're a taker, sit and think through, if those same people were gone, would you be able to do all of the things that you do or would they just become a little difficult? If it feels as if you are on the razor's edge of failure, It's time to step back and find ways to support yourself and grow without relying on someone else. I would encourage you to find ways to support other people around you without getting anything in return. Find a way to care and love for your loved ones. If it's for a romantic partner in a date or a card or something sweet, if it's for family, is it something you do in the home? It's something you take care of or watch over? You have to find the balance. And this is the beautiful thing about codependent relationships is that they can be healed by borrowing from one another. If you kick out intensity and you're just left with intimacy and two people, those givers and takers can learn from one another. They can start to create boundaries that make sense. They can learn to love and support each other However, it is incredibly difficult and near impossible to do if intensity is still in play. If you find yourself in a codependent relationship and you want to find healing, intensity must be removed. You have to identify your role, and each partner has to accept their role in what they have to do. Couples therapy can be great for this or you can just learn to borrow from one another and see where things go from there. I would encourage you to consider if these roles have been continued over time, if they were the same in your family or your friendships. And if you see a pattern, ask yourself why. If you've seen something shift, also ask yourself why. Thank you for listening today. If you feel the need, you can leave something in the tip jar. If not, I hope that you share this podcast with people you care about so that they can also gain support and insight have a great day